0: We can create software. We can come up with an idea. We can go on Kickstarter. We can go on Indiegogo. We can get it funded. We can create a video. We can be talking to thousands, if not millions, of potential customers all in the same day.
1: Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. Please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Today we have David Cancel, who's the CEO of Drift, which is the easiest way to grow your customers. David is a 5X founder and helped grow companies such as Performable, Ghostery, Lookery, and Compete. He's also the co-host of the Seeking Wisdom podcast. David, how's it going?
0: It's going great Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
0: Sure thing. You did a great job there. So, I'm a kind of five-time entrepreneur. I'm obsessed with starting companies. All my companies have had one similar theme in them, which is helping businesses and communicate better with their customers. And I've done that in different ways throughout all those different businesses, but that's the thing that, you know, is kind of my obsession and kind of life's mission. And I, I just love making that connection and um, making building customer driven teams and customer driven products. And so, yeah, that's what that's what I want to help every company in the world be able to do.
1: Awesome. So I want to circle back to your experience around those companies because I've definitely used some of those products before. But talk a little bit about Drift. You know, how did you come up with the idea, and you know, what are you trying to solve here?
0: Sure. So we started Drift a little over a year ago. Myself and Elias Torres, who was my co-founder at Performable. And uh, work, we worked together later at HubSpot, which acquired Performable. And so, you know, we started about a year ago, and it all came from that same obsession, which I mentioned, which is around this kind of customer driven kind of framework and obsession that we've had. And it's affected everything from how we build teams to how we build products and how we build companies. And really, what it is is like, we think like there's been a massive shift in our lifetime where we went from building software back in the day where you would never interface with a customer, right? You would ship software kind of in a static way, and that's where kind of agile, from a software development standpoint, agile and waterfall methodologies came from. You were never connected with a customer. And fast forward to the world that we live in today, where everyone who's growing up would not even believe that that world existed, right? We can create software We can come up with an idea, we can go on Kickstarter, we can go on Indiegogo, we can get it funded, we can create a video, we can be talking to thousands, if not millions, of potential customers all in the same day, right? So it's changed the way that we build software fundamentally, where we can be talking with customers throughout every step of the building and kind of creation from little features to company ideas. And we think we want to help companies kind of make that transition. And so we're focused on, at Drift on building an easy way for companies to communicate with their customers across all the different teams within a company, which sounds easy. But if you've ever worked in a company, it's hard, right? Because like only certain groups in the company can communicate and they're not sure which channels to communicate in. And you know customers want to be communicated mostly when they're actually using your product. And so we're building a product that lets uh, companies do that.
1: Interesting. Okay, so what would be like an example use case of Drift in Action?
0: Sure. So imagine you come into uh, one of your favorite products that you use. Let's say it's Uber, and you go into the Uber app, the mobile app, or the web app, and you have a question for Uber, or Uber has a question for you. Let's say they're building a new product feature, or they just want to get an idea of something. Back in the day, people would email you, would send you something, would call you, but why don't they communicate to you right when you're actually using the app, ideally when you're using the feature that they have a question about or you have a question about. And so we provide a way for people to communicate within the actual app experience and to get feedback, uh, whether that's how happy they are, whether feedback on a new feature, all kind of contextually within the app, whether it's a mobile app or a web app.
1: Great. Okay. And my understanding is you guys also have uh, Drift Daily as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, Drift Daily is kind is a free tool that anyone can sign up for. And so the idea behind Drift Daily is we all collect, you know, subscribers and users and contacts, you know, and all the different products that we build and even newsletters that we have. But at the end of the day, it's just a long list of email addresses and we want to help People start that conversation with those customers and those subscribers and those users of your products. And so, Drift Daily integrates into the apps that you already use, like HubSpot, like a Mailchimp, like a Shopify. And each day, it goes through and sees the new customers and new subscribers that you have, and then sends you either a daily digest with more information about those people, like, "Hey, this is Eric. Here's his Twitter handle. Here's more about Eric." So you actually get to understand the person and not just an email address. And then optionally, if you use something like Slack, we integrate into Slack and we'll send, instead of a digest, we'll send real-time notifications. So you're seeing all the people that are new subscribers or customers and learning more about them.
1: Yeah, super helpful on the, on the sales and marketing side. And I guess not just for those, but, uh, but across the board, especially if you're pushing into Slack. So I guess the, the question would be, what is the, the goal of, you know, creating Drift daily and giving it away for free? Is it to grow Drift, the core product?
0: You know, it's the starting point. So before you can actually have a conversation with, a customer or user, you got to know who they are, and you got to know more about them, ideally. And so Drift Daily connects into the tools that you use today, because behind what we're trying to do with Drift is to make it an open platform that integrates into all your favorite tools and learns more about your users and customers. And then ideally, you can someday use Drift to communicate with those customers. Awesome.
1: Okay. And I know for Drift Daily, I'm not sure about Drift, but Drift Daily on Product Hunt, it did really well. So do you have any insight as to, you know, what a really good, I think you guys got like a top five rating that day. I mean, what does that typically look like in terms of traffic and signups?
0: Yeah, it was fantastic. So we were a top five. I think we had like between four and 500 upvotes that day, which was fantastic. And um, it led to... An insane number of signups, and uh, not only directly from Product Hunt, but then we started to notice kind of like the uh, roll-on, you know, effect where different different blogs were uh, like design blogs or developer blogs started blogging about Drift daily, and uh, we never did any promotion except on Product Hunt, so it all pretty much stemmed from the Product Hunt users, and uh, and you know, being a free tool and being a one-click integration, it was easy for for us to turn that traffic into daily drift users
1: interesting so i I think the lesson for for the audience is sometimes you can build out another another tool to to fuel acquisition so i think that's a really smart idea okay so let's dive a little bit into you know you've done these 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 companies in the past ghostry lookery and compete i mean what after you've experienced you know all 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 of these startups i mean what are the same constants that you continue to experience from each company What, what is like what is the absolute uh similar trend that you see all the time
0: yeah so um Good question. After each company, you're still figuring it out, you're still learning. So, I'd say it's some of the core ones that stand out to me are the obvious ones that we hear. Team. Team is the most important thing to me. You know, I used to, I was an engineer back in the day when I started Compete. And, um, you know, for me, I, I kind of geeked out on all the problems and the design and the coding and all that, all, all the stuff that we geek out on as engineers. But you know, through that experience and the, through the experience of my other companies, I came to a view that you know it was like ninety nine percent people and technology and design and all the stuff that we love to geek on about and onboarding and this is huge and marketing. But it's really like it's like the one percent. Like if you can't get a team working together, if you can't get a team communicating well with customers, if you can't really solve the people part of it, especially if you're trying to scale a business. Totally different if you're a solopreneur, but like. That's where things fall apart. That's where things break. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking about team and recruiting and motivating, all that kind of stuff. I'd say a second thing is kind of I've developed through all that experience this kind of framework or this way of thinking where I default now, and I talk about this a ton internally as we build products and new features. The default that we should take is that we're wrong about everything. That every idea that we have, every feature idea, product idea, is wrong, and our job is to get it out and get feedback on that idea as soon as possible by the people who are going to use it every day to figure out how wrong we are so you know we're usually somewhere between five percent wrong or a hundred percent wrong, right it's somewhere in between there and uh, and that's a hard thing for entrepreneurs and engineers and designers to get their head around because you know they become obsessed and I have become obsessed many times with an idea that I have and wanting to create that idea and it's really about getting out there and getting feedback from the actual people that are going to use it. It sounds so simple but in technology for some reason we have this kind of hang up where we think and we believe these kind of um, these revisionist stories or these Hollywood stories, these fables that people have ideas in showers and then those ideas go on to be billion dollar companies. And I can tell you, I've spent time around thousands of entrepreneurs in my time and that's never been the case once, right? That's like a Hollywood story. The real truth is that you have an idea and you go out and that idea changes over time and you iterate on it and slowly changes and takes on its own shape. And this is true in any kind of creative field, right? If you look at writers and painters and Anyone who creates anything from something from nothing, they always go through in this, this iterative process. You, no writer would ever think the first draft of something that they write is going to be the one that's going to be the hit. But in technology, we have this belief that the first idea is going to be the idea that's going to be the golden idea.
1: Right. I mean, that's a great framework because it adds a sense of humility uh, versus like, you know, in a sense of, I guess, especially sometimes in the tech world, we can feel really uh, entitled and we feel like we're right all the time. So I think that's a great framework.
0: You nailed it. That's the main thing behind the, the framework. It's basically teaching you that level of humility that you need. Right. We all have egos. Right. There's no getting around that. But how do you put your ego to the side so that you can learn from your customers and learn about what you're trying to create. And it takes humility to do that.
1: I love it. I think it was a couple of years back. I know I remember th- this one quote stuck out and it was heat Shaw retweeting you, I think. And the quote was 95% of the time, it's a process problem. You know, 5% of the time, it's a people problem. And that stuck with me ever since. I think it was you, right?
0: Yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah,
1: cool, man. I remember <laughs> that. that. Cool. Well, I guess, you know, how do you, because, you know, when I look at these, these these are all technology companies compete and ghostry I mean, How do you go about, I guess, what would be your number one tactic or strategy you can share around finding the best people?
0: In reality, I collect them over time. So I I take a long view on this stuff. So we're all, as we're starting new ideas and new companies, uh, we're all anxious to get out there and we want to move as fast as possible. But when it comes to people, I take this long view and all the different people that you interact with over time, whether it be at your startup or past companies that you worked at or when you were in school or people who you grew up with, you want to become a people collector and you want to start collecting Different people and understanding their personalities and what they're strong at and just collecting them in your head. And, you know, I I have a long list of people that I'm thinking about for different stages of different businesses. And then I, I try to bring those people together. The other thing I'd say on the people side is the most important thing that you want to optimize for is all the soft, qualitative skills that usually people never interview for. So like all of us, especially in technology and in marketing, where we like to measure everything, we like to fixate on the quantitative stuff that's easy to measure when you're interviewing people. What school they want, went to, what kind of apps they have built, what languages they know from a technology standpoint, what does their design look like. All of these easy to quantify things, those things are super important, but those are like par for the course. That's like the entry fee, right? Really what you want to focus on is, is this someone that I want to be around? will I learn from this person every day, no matter how experienced they are? If they're an intern, if this is their first job, if they're super senior, if they're whoever they are, you want to feel like I'm going to learn from this person. Are they curious? You know, are they passionate about what they're doing? And they're hungry to grow and learn? If they're hungry to grow and learn, and they have there's someone you want to be around and you can learn from, then they can figure out all of those other hard things, right? They can figure out like, the latest framework they can figure out the latest tools all that stuff's easy to figure out that stuff's the known stuff right that's like you know the analogy to me it's like you know back in the day going to school you used to the focus was on memorization and memorizing facts and figures and dates and all this stuff why do you need to know that today you can just google that stuff that no longer is the skill for you to learn uh, and same thing with technology you can figure out most of these things you can learn them now they're they're easy to figure out none of this is a mystery when we're building products really and so what you want to focus in on is the stuff that you can't easily teach you can't teach someone to be hungry to have humility you can't teach someone to be the type of person you want to be around you can't fix those things and so i focus a lot on that and that sounds squishy but that has like this add on effect where if you focus on that and focus on people that you want to be around and that are curious and want to learn, and you start building a team around that, then the team becomes super powered, right? Because you just have a team full of people that are leveling up each other, right? You're stacking these, you're stacking kind of these levels on top of each other and they not competing, but they're like want to get better because everyone around them is getting better. And that's the key to to get people super, super fired up and super productive.
1: So if I were to recap, it would number one would be they have to be a voracious learner. Yes. And number two, they should be well, they have to be somebody that you'd like to get a beer with.
0: Absolutely. So one of my like limitless tests on the last on the second point is that you may interview someone and they may be smart and great and all this stuff, and you have an awesome meeting with them. And then but you always have to do the day after test. This is just like dating, right? The next day when they reach out and they send you an email, they call you or whatever. What's your split second gut tell you? Do you want to pick up the phone? Do you want to email them? Or do you, buy, do you say, oh, I'll get back to Eric later. I'm busy right now. If you say the latter, I'll get back to them later. That's all you need to know right? That's someone you shouldn't work with.
1: Wow. Yeah, I love that. Well, wow. I've never even thought of it that way. I'll, I'll typically it, it will because I like to act quickly, right? I won't, I won't even think about that. So I'm like actually going to steal that.
0: You got to use that one because, you know, we're all going to rationalize the decision because you'll say, Oh, I'll get back to him later. Uh, and then you convince yourself. And this is where you make all the bad decisions. You'll say, Well, he was super smart. Well, we really need someone on the team now. Well, we really, we really need help. All right, let's hire him. And that's where all the bad mistakes come from.
1: Right. And I think an extreme way to put this, well, I guess there's two different ways to put it. One from Jason Calacanis. If there's any doubt, there's no doubt. That's number one. Yep. Number two, if it's not a fuck yes, then it's a fuck no.
0: That's it. I love it. Okay. I love it. You know, Derek Stevers wrote an article a long time ago called Hell Yeah or No.
1: That's the one, I think.
0: Yeah. That's it. Cool. All
1: right. Well, I guess, you know, looking at the, the companies that, uh, that you've helped grow in the past, I mean, what was the hardest one to grow, you think?
0: Compete for sure. So that was my first company. And uh, it was hard because mostly because of the environment. So the economic environment. So we started that post, if you can remember this far ago, we started that in, in November of 2000. So if you go back in your history books, you'll know that in March of 2000, the market crashed. that was the dot com kind of crash that we all know about, we've all read about. And so I started the company, you know, in the fall. So after the crash, not a smart time to start a company, right? Because the, the world was melting down. And then we managed to get off the ground and we managed to have uh, success with customers early in that first year. But then if you look in your history books yet again, in September of the following year, uh, that was two, uh, 9-11 basically happened. And so then we had then the recession really started, right? It was already bad after the dot-com bubble, but... People who had experienced it knew that it was still hope, but then after 9-11, things really shut down. And then we lost, because of that, we lost pretty much all of our customers after 9-11 because we had a lot of companies that were in the travel industry and a lot of industries that were affected by 9-11. And so from 2001 through really the end of 2003, those that, those were the hardest years of, of my of my professional life, I'd say, just trying to hold on and just trying to make things work. And then in uh, early 2004, the market turned around and, um, and then we started to hockey stick as a company.
1: How did you guys keep it together in, in those, uh, I think it was two years?
0: Yeah, really hard. That's why you know I look back now and I think the only real business book that I've ever read, and I've read hundreds at this point, is Ben Horitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And if you read that book, which I highly recommend, it's uh, you've got to go read it now. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read that book, You need to go read it immediately after this podcast. But if you read his book, he's talking about the forming of his company with Mark Andreessen called Loud Cloud. And the whole story of that book is really during the same time that I had this company. And he tells all the same stories about just like, you know, the layoffs, just making it happen, just like figuring out a way to just like keep this thing going. And because of that, you know, it was hard. At the end, we had a great outcome for the company. We sold the company in 2007. But, you know, like that has kind of framed my worldview. And from since then, everything is easy, right? All these other companies and this time that I've lived, you know, the current time even is like a cakewalk, right? It's nothing compared to that. So I had my war story and and that's helped frame everything else.
1: Yeah, it's super helpful, and I highly recommend that book. I think you're probably the 21st entrepreneur to recommend that here. That's how good it is. That's why everybody has to read it. I keep recommending it over I again. mean, when you
0: read it, yeah. for me, I kind of like, um, like experience it emotionally when I'm reading it because those were the exact times that I was going through. Right? It, it, it brings me back to that time.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. Well, <laughs> it's quite a while back. But I mean, when you sold Compete, I mean, you know, what numbers can you reveal around that? How much did you guys sell it for? How big did it get?
0: Sure, we sold uh, in 2007. uh, We got acquired by WPP, which is the world's largest kind of marketing agency and marketing research company. And we were acquired for $150 million. Wow.
1: I guess this is just me wondering for selfish reasons. Why would a marketing, I mean, what did they end up doing
0: with it? Do you know? Um, uh, Compete still lives and is doing great and is it, it's part of um, their company. So WPP is a European company. There's a couple of these, which is which are kind of uh, conglomerates. We don't really have them in the US. And so they operate thousands of brands. And you've probably heard of some of their brands, but they're all owned by this company. And so Compete still exists and is bigger than ever and Compete is one of their market research companies and we Compete helps brands and companies know more about their customers and know about more about their competitors' customers. So we provide information about like any website in the world and how they're getting their customers and how they're converting and where they're getting traffic from and how that stuff's converting and who are their best customers and all of that kind of stuff. And so that was kind of the beginning of my obsession around kind of customers and companies.
1: You know, it's really interesting. I mean, me discovering Compete a few years ago when I first started doing uh, internet marketing, I start, started to look at Compete. I started to look at all these other tools. And, you know, today they're similar web as well. Yes. And, you know, the traffic trends seem to be, you know, they they seem to be accurate sometimes, but then the, the the traffic numbers are sometimes way off. Can you go into that?
0: Yeah. So the, the, the numbers will always be off because they're panel-based, right? So they're not... The important thing is not that the absolute numbers are exact or not, but that the trends matter. So the trends are what people are trying to understand in terms of brands. And that because we had a, a single panel of several million users, and that's where we were getting our projections from. We could look at not only your website, but all of your competitors' websites and understand like how they were doing relative to yours. right? So you had a single benchmark to see how JetBlue was doing versus Southwest versus you know Delta or whoever the the brand was, and so without compete, and now there are lots of tools like this, but at the time, compete was pretty much the tool. You had no way to understand how your competitors are doing. Right now, you have like SEO, like spying tools, and you have all these competitive research tools that are out there. But when we when I started compete, those things didn't exist. Right, that category really didn't exist in the online world.
1: Makes sense. Okay. I guess another question would be, and this goes across all five companies, I mean, in terms of customer acquisition, what's a trend that you've
0: seen continue to hold? Uh, Yeah, the biggest one, which is you kind of mentioned in what we're doing with Drift Daily, is, uh, and this started with my experience at Performable, and Performable was later acquired by HubSpot, and then we saw it at HubSpot again. And then we're seeing it at Drift, which is this move to kind of product or free products As an acquisition source, and so we all know, like if you come from the marketing world, you went from the old model of cold calling people, right? That was the old school model, and that was mostly the enterprise sales model. And then you went to a model in the last whatever seven eight years where you created content, so kind of inbound approach. You created content, you gave away eBooks, you gave away uh, webinars, you gave away something of value in order to get contact information, and then you would follow up to try to convert someone. And then you've seen this new wave of companies who are using either their core product or side projects or side products to give away something of value. Instead of giving away an ebook, the new ebook is giving away a product that people love and use every day. And then as they use that product, there's a natural kind of um, synergy with your product and a natural path for them to kind of upgrade or to move into your bigger product.
1: That makes so much sense. And I think the way you put it is perfect. It is the new ebook. And that, this actually might be the headline for this podcast, because seriously, like everybody can do an ebook nowadays, but you have to be able to to raise the bar. And like you look at Product Hunt right now. Yeah, people are doing things like Drift Daily or, you know, worst case scenario, you might do a lot of people are just curating a bunch of content saying, you know, here, here are the best hundred resources and those do really well. So I think there's there's something to be said for that. So I like the way you put it
0: yeah because you know the game's always evolving it's always changing, and you need to be providing something of more value, right so the value keeps going up, so we saw like content was really hard to create, and then content became easy to create, especially written content and so written content is pretty hard to stand out these days you got to be really good uh and then video content was really hard to produce and really hard to create and so a lot of people had some advantages with video content for a while and still do today. I don't think you know we've uh, we 're still in that in that rise, but now video is becoming easier with you know everyone can periscope and Snapchat and share all types of video so what 's the new bar and the new bar is product as the source to get new leads and new customers
1: product as lead magnet I love it. Cool.
0: That's it. All right.
1: So let, let's talk about. I mean, you know, after Performable was acquired and you had to go to HubSpot for a little bit, I mean, a lot of founders, uh, you know, people are probably, the companies are probably going to be acquired or they might IPO, but what is it acquisition? I mean, what does it look like afterwards? You know, what does your day to day look like?
0: Yeah, so this was unusual for me because uh, my other companies that compete and Ghostream and other things have been acquired in the past and I had never gone as part of that acquisition. So I had always left at the time of acquisition. And so as a kind of serial startup person, I never thought that I'd go as part of any acquisition. It was just not in my nature to want to work for a larger company. But the HubSpot acquisition of Performable was totally different. Uh, The things that were different were I knew the team Really well, and I knew the investors really well uh, even before they had started the company and funded the company. We had pretty much the same mission, Performo and HubSpot, and we wanted to create an anchor company here in Boston, a company that we would go all the way with, we would go public, and a company that would outlive us, focused on in the same area of marketing. And so it made sense for us to merge, and to try and kind of achieve that dream, which we did about a year and a half ago, and. Um, the thing that you know inside it was pretty different. You know, HubSpot was like uh, around 200 people when we got acquired. By the time uh, we went public, we were a little over a thousand people. That was about the time that I left, and so we and we had gone from 2,000 customers to about over 15,000 customers, and so we and we had expanded you know offices globally and all that kind of stuff. And so I got to see this kind of rapid growth, right? Because at compete. The largest any of my companies had ever gotten to was 150 people, and that was compete. And so I'd never seen life after that. And that was one of the things that I wanted to learn. I wanted to see like what was this stage which I went through, which was 200 to 1,000 people, hyper growth kind of stage. Really fast growth, high velocity. What did that look like? And how did marketing work in that world? How did sales work? How did we approach you know, building product? All those things. And HubSpot was amazing in that HubSpot had this amazing marketing and sales culture and team like I had never ever seen in my life. Also great services and support team, but they were always historically very weak on the product and engineering side and Performable was very strong on product and engineering and so as when we came together we got to create kind of kind of the superhero super league, right? We had amazing product, amazing engineering, we already had amazing sales and marketing and Putting those things together let us build a, an amazing company. And so I don't think it's like any other you know, big company. I don't, it was just a different experience and it was kind of once, you know, once-in-a-lifetime thing. You know, uh, at Drift, I never want to sell Drift and I, wanna, I want Drift to become an anchor company in Boston just like we did with HubSpot and I want Drift to, to live well beyond my lifetime.
1: Makes sense. It sounds like the, the only reason HubSpot worked out was because the core values aligned with well, both the core values aligned for both sides.
0: Absolutely. Without the core values, there's no way that I would have done it, and that they probably would have done it. Right.
1: Okay. So I want to dive back into uh, compete when you, those those two or three years when you were struggling. I mean, can you give us a specific example where maybe the company was on the brink of failure?
0: Yeah, we had. We were lucky in that uh when when i started the company we managed i'm not sure how even we managed to raise a series a in november of 2000 which was you know back then it was no one was raising any money especially here in boston and cambridge and so we raised a 6 million dollar series a which was big and we were lucky and then we went into market and like as i said we lost our customers most of our customers in year 1 and then year those next two years uh, were really tough because we were trying to pr- find product market fit. We had cash in the bank, but we had to, We didn't know when we would get cash again. And so we had to go through two rounds of painful layoffs within the team, which were devastating because it was a time unlike today where even if you were an engineer and you were getting laid off, there was a high likelihood that you might not find a job for six months to a year. Right, So it was like you know having a layoff you knew you were almost pushing people into that environment or sentencing them to that you know it was a really sad time and so emotionally it was super tough at the same time we were building a company that was focused on understanding the internet and understanding your competitors on the internet and your performance on the internet but guess what in 2002 and 2003 nobody cared about the internet and so you know we were off trying to sell compete and now I have lots of great stories and funny stories that I can look back at because it seems so ludicrous but I, you know, we would go in and try to sell to companies and they would say all, I have all famous quotes they would say nobody is ever going to buy anything on the internet except books on Amazon because remember at the time Amazon only sold books mm-hmm. uh, no one's ever going to put a credit card online multiple people going in and be like what internet data I lost my bleep 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 401k to Yahoo stock why would I ever care about the internet? No, no. Like, the list goes on. They're all funny now in retrospect. But when you're, like, um, grinding day in and day out, and that is every single day, and uh, and you're also thinking about layoffs and all that, tough. Really tough.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, and I think... Uh... And you don't even need to buy the book here for The Hard Thing About Hard Things. If any of you just Google The Struggle by Ben Horowitz, you know, you're going to know what, uh, what David went through.
0: <laughs> That's what I lived through, The Struggle. So now <laughs> it's easy. So, you know, the, you know, that gives you context for a lot of things and helps you appreciate kind of the times that we're, we've been in since then. But it also, you know, makes me worried about, you know, entrepreneurs that I meet that don't have that context, right? Not because uh, they might think that this is the new normal right and that startups are no risk and to me startups are crazy right and start and you have to be a little crazy to want to start them because they're actually not rational and when we're in a time and we always will have these cycles we're we're in a time where people start to think that they're the rational bet those are scary times because they're not by default they shouldn't be right you can't have high upside without high downside and so you need high beta to make startups work
1: right makes sense okay, okay. well I want to switch gears here. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self?
0: Learn from others, right? Number one thing that I talk about with people, which is learn from others. People are always asking for like shortcuts, hacks, tricks, that if you read Medium or you read you know any Twitter feed, you know that most articles are about tricks, hacks, shortcuts, lists, whatever you want to call them. And we all fall prey to wanting to read them. But the, the thing that I've learned is like the only shortcut guaranteed shortcut that I found is learning from others and there's lots of ways that you can learn from others and the reason that it's a shortcut is that you're getting to live their experiences without having to live through their failures if you're smart enough right and so Warren Buffett has a great quote which is like which is about learning from failure but the trick is that you don't have to learn from your own failure right you can learn from other people's failures and so that's why I read so much nonstop reading so reading is one way to learn from others Peer groups are one of the best ways, which is like whatever you want to learn, whether it's like growth or you want to learn about, you know, develop, you know, building something or a certain area or sales tools or whatever you want to learn about, you want to like surround yourself with people who are experts in that area, you know, who are just a little bit ahead of you and who are going to help you level up, right? Because once you're around those people, it's not that they're going to necessarily teach you anything. You're going to figure out and say like, whoa, I'm as smart as these people. I can figure this out. They don't know anything I don't know. And that's going to help you level up. And that's why you've got to continuously surround yourself with different groups of people who are role models uh, who will help you kind of accelerate. And then lastly, you know, mentors and You know, I've always had mentors and mentors are 10, 20, 30 years ahead of where I want to be in a particular area. And those can help you kind of accelerate your learning as well. So number one thing I would tell myself is learn from others, learn from others. Don't be stupid. You don't have to learn all of these things on your own.
1: That actually segues well into my next question. I, I don't typically ask this, but I do notice when certain people have what I can tell that they have a framework around it. And Heaton Shaw is a good example. I just know he's, he's very studious and he's learning all the time. And I look at you, I can tell that there's a learning framework. So can you share that?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Heaton and I are old friends and uh, have similar ways of thinking. That's where we hang out. You know, what's my learning framework? I don't even know if I can if I can uh, describe it. Right. I think, you know, constantly wanting to learn and always defaulting to to this idea that I'm wrong is kind of the is the meta framework for me. Right. And there's lots of little details on how I do this each day. But like, that's the worldview that I take. Like, I don't have any entitlement. I don't think I'm owed anything. I don't think anything is going to happen magically for me. So I'm going to go out and grind and make it happen. And I'm going to default to thinking that I am wrong that all my ideas are wrong, and so I need to get them out there as soon as possible. And I'm always going to be looking for others to learn from. And so when I'm in a room of people who are way ahead of me or even slightly ahead of me, I'm going to shut up and sit and listen and learn from those people and uh, absorb. And then I'm going to go out and actually put those ideas and thoughts into action and test them and evaluate them and go back and learn. And so like the learning process never ends, and that's maybe my... biggest obsession is just learning and continuously getting better. And every day I want to wake up a little bit better than the night before.
1: Love it. And I I think one thing uh, we'll drop in the show notes too. You do have a list of books that you recommend. I know Derek Sivers has a book, uh, a list of books too. So Mm -hmm. I, I think those are always really helpful for people. So we'll drop those in the show notes.
0: Awesome. And if you ever have a list of books, I'd love to read them too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Having said that, that t- talking about that list really quickly, I mean, what's one must read book you recommend to everyone aside from Ben Horowitz's book?
0: So there's all types of books. My, my favorite and the one that I always come back to is the same. It's called Made in America and it's written by Sam Walton. And that's a book that I always recommend to anyone who's thinking about the stuff that we're talking about. And it's uh, you can buy it on Amazon, it'll cost you six bucks, seven bucks max, and it looks like something that you would find at the supermarket checkout stand, but it is worth a thousand, you know, four work week books and whatever other books are on the top bestseller list. It was written by Sam Walton. If you don't know who that is, he was the founder of Walmart and uh, he lived an incredible life and he was the epitome of what we've talked about today, which is this quest to always be learning, to always be humble. And uh, and to be out there learning constantly from others, and he has lots of famous quotes about like that he never had an original idea in his life, that he stole ideas, he stole the best ideas from the best people, and kind of put those together. And uh, you know, this is a man that for a long time was the richest man in the world, and uh, and he never stopped learning, he never stopped progressing. And so that book I've read now five times, and I recommend to everyone.
1: I love it. All right. Well, David, this has been fantastic. I mean, what's the, what's the best way for people to find you online?
0: Uh, so you can find me on Twitter, d D-Cancel, D-C-A-N-C-E-L. And uh, as you mentioned, I have a new podcast. I'm trying to figure things out and I'm learning from, from folks like Eric and uh, it's called Seeking Wisdom. You can find it on iTunes and I appreciate any feedback that you have. I'm just getting started, but you know, I'm used to grinding, so I'll grind and, uh, and I'll figure it out.
1: Awesome. David, thanks so much for doing this.